We talked last week about the first chapter of Leviticus. I, I bragged. Y'all remember I bragged last week about how I hadn't lost my glasses? <laughs> lost them today and uh, sent my son Levi to look for them and the hero brought them back to me. How about that? So uh, thank you, Levi, for finding them. We discussed chapter one last week, and we're going to try to look today at chapter two and three. We'll see how these go together. And uh, just remember where we are. I want us to put some ideas in here because we consider these first five books to be a, a package deal in somewhat. The, the Torah, the law written by Moses, given to us at a time. And, and really it spans, as Moses is writing this, it spans over hundreds of years, you know, from all the way back to creation, working through, uh, through the flood, through all that time, Abraham. And then it spans those 400 years in between Genesis and Exodus. So from the beginning to the end, there are hundreds, if not a thousands of years here that this time has gone through. But 40% of the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, five, the book of five, right? So the first five books, 40% of the first five books of the Bible deal with one year. Does that make sense to everybody? Because it's a span over hundreds, if not thousands of years here from creation to the time when the people of God enter into the promised land and through Deuteronomy into Joshua. And during that time, you have those hundreds of years, but, but from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10 is one year. It's really, it's one year. It's when the people of God get their way back to Mount Sinai and God shows up there at the mountain and the Ten Commandments are given to them and they wait there as they hear their, their orders from God as to how they are to build the tabernacle, how they are to establish this new government under God, if you will, what their laws are, how they are to live. It's one year that they spend here, and it's 40% of these first five books. And that's what Leviticus is. Leviticus is just a continuation of what God taught Moses on that mountain as to how the people of God are to exist in this new government that he has given him with him in their midst, him as their king. So that's where we are with Leviticus. And if you end... Exodus, it tells you they build the tabernacle, the glory comes in. Leviticus is just a way of how that uh, tabernacle with the glory of God and the presence there in the midst of the people, how it is to be used. So you have a tabernacle. The tabernacle represents the presence of God with his people. You have that. It has been built. Now, how is it that you are to use this tabernacle that has been built? What are you to do with it? How are you to have a regular worship in this place with this tabernacle? That's what Leviticus is really all about. And as I said last week, there's no small talk in Leviticus. You got one little section there of a narrative that kind of tells a little bit of a story that gives you some idea of what's going on. But, but it really just gets to the heart of the matter real quick. Let's get to it real quick. And right off the bat, it tells us of, of the type of sacrifices that were to be done there in the tabernacle. And the first three sacrifices... 
that we look at. Last week, we see the burnt offering sacrifice. You, can, you mostly can use, I think, mostly if you, I'm, I'm teaching out of the English Standard Version, ESV. If you look at the headings, it kind of sets everything up for you real plain here. You see first the, the burnt offerings in chapter one, the grain offerings in chapter two, and the peace offerings in chapter three. So you have just those three, and then you'll see the sin offerings and the guilt offerings after that in chapters four, five, and into six. And then after the, the guilt offerings, you'll see how the priests were to handle the offerings. So those first little bit here is kind of saying, here's the offerings you are to bring. All of this is to be understood as worship. What is God worth? He is worth, worthy of our worship. And so this is how we worship. Now, remember, the danger for Leviticus is that we get caught up with the trees and we miss the forest, right? And so what I want to try to do, oftentimes you miss you miss the, you know, you get caught up in the details of the trees, you miss the forest. Now, sometimes we, we look at the forest too much and don't look at the trees, right? But here is a case where we get caught up in some of these and we read these things and we just, it just blows our mind because he's talking about cleaning off the entrails and cutting off the hind legs and burning this on top of that and, and, and eating this, but don't eat that. And I mean, it gets into these details and sometimes you get bogged down into those details and you miss kind of the big picture of what's being done here. The big picture of Leviticus is that God's people have been redeemed from slavery out of Egypt not to be left alone and God said, all right, I got you out, y'all go about it. God saved them to be with them, to be in their presence, to dwell with them. And so now the question comes, how does that holy God who dwells with them, and we saw that in Exodus, he enters into that tabernacle that they build for him. How does that holy God who, who dwells with them there to be with them, how now can a sinful people live with him? How can they live in his presence? And so the book of Leviticus, big picture, is dealing with that. How can a sinful people be welcomed into the presence of God? What does it require? What does it take? What is needed? And that's exactly what Leviticus is dealing with. What's required for a holy God to dwell with his sinful people? What's needed? And so ultimately, by the way, if we can get big picture and step back big picture of Bible, that's exactly what salvation's for already, isn't it? Y'all, have y'all read the book of Revelation? It's a real clear, easy to read book. It's not a problem. You can do it in one sitting at night, you know, over family supper. Y'all remember how it works. Jesus wins, right? And how does that end up? God's people are living with the Lord in his presence for all eternity, right? He saved them, us, to live with us. And so what does it take for God's people to dwell with the Lord for all eternity? We're getting a glimpse, a smaller picture of that here in the desert, here at Sinai with the people of God. Does that make sense to everybody? So you're getting this. We're getting a glimpse of what it takes for God to dwell with his sinful people, which is what we are longing for for all eternity. 
what we're longing for for all eternity. We started last week with the burnt offerings that were given. We're going to try to look at the next two. For the, the, the first three, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering, those first three are what's called voluntary offerings, right? Next, you'll see sin and guilt. Those are mandatory. If you don't deal with your sin and your guilt, then you can't enter into the Lord's presence. But these burnt offerings, uh, the grain offering and the peace offering, they are, they are what we refer to as what we refer to as voluntary offerings. And, and I would even say more than that, they're voluntary but expected. Does that make sense? You bring them, uh, some called it free will offerings, but they're expected. This is something that, that is expected, and we'll see a little bit of that. Wow, we talked about the first one last week. We're going to look at chapter 2 and chapter 3 this week. Chapter 2 then. The laws for grain offerings. We saw last week with the burnt offering that if you're going to bring a burnt offering before the Lord, that you have to go out, if you remember, and you get the male in your, out of your herd, from your herd, the male from your herd without blemish, you bring it in and you sacrifice the one male that is your best male. So if you're going to bring that, that burnt offering, you have to bring the best bull from the herd, bring it in without blemish. You're bringing your best, right, to the Lord, for he's worth it. So you bring your best offering in to the Lord. A, a sign that you are consecrating yourself, your herd, all that you have to the Lord, recognizing that you've got a really nice bull out there because the Lord has blessed you with it. It's his. And what he's saying is, bring back the first fruits to me, the best that you have in this offering, because I'm the one who provides these things for you. So you give back what's best first to me. And so you see that with the burnt offering. But what's interesting about this is there's a recognition here. Not everybody in Israel had a herd at all. Not everybody was able to, it was, it was actually a higher socioeconomic class that was able to be a herdsman or someone who owned that much property. So many in Israel weren't able to bring a bull from the herd. And so you may say, well, the Lord says, well, tough luck on you guys, but that's not how our God operates. He's gracious and he's kind. He's, he's one who provides and he's, he's merciful to his people. And so the Lord looks at those and gives them another alternative here. That's what we see with the grain offering. The grain offering is an alternative to those who may not have the bull. They may not have the one without blemish. They may not have a herd at all. So this grain offering comes as an opportunity, if you will, for all people. Rich, poor, anyone can please God through giving their best. Now recognize and I want to, to remind you of this because we talked about this before. If you go back to the first sacrifice, because by the way, what this is really dealing with is not just the bull that's without blemish. What really matters to God is what? The one who brings the bull, right? What really matters to the Lord, and we'll see that, it's, it, the, the, the worship is a matter of the heart, right? The Lord will will come down pretty hard on the Israelites who bring their offering, but they do it from a manipulative or sinful heart, some idea that they're gaining from the Lord. So what really matters is the heart of the heart of the one who's bringing the sacrifice. 
And what reflects, though, what helps reflect that heart is how you treat the sacrifice, what you do, whether or not you're obedient to what God says. And so if you remember all the way back to the first time that humans brought sacrifices in Scripture, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, if you remember. And Abel brings a sacrifice. As the Lord had sacrificed in chapter 3 with the animals, Abel brings an animal sacrifice. And he makes that sacrifice to God, and God accepts it. And then what does Cain do? Cain brings his sacrifice, and what does he bring? Grain. He brings some grain in to sacrifice, not an animal, as the Lord says. But what was God's problem with that? It was Cain's heart in this. Cain didn't bring the grain sacrifice because he couldn't do anything else. He's bringing this saying, here, you can take this. This is what I will offer you. And then God is saying, Cain, the, the devil's crouching at your door ready to destroy you if you're not careful. And we saw that that's what happened. So here the Lord is not simply saying, it, it wasn't saying then if you bring grain sacrifices, the devil's after you. That's not what was happening in Cain and Abel. What's happening there was the heart and the motive by which Cain brought it and how he brought it half-heartedly, not completely devoted to God as God had called him to. And ultimately here what we see is the Lord makes a way in his mercy and grace for anyone who can, who can come to him to bring an offering that fits within their life that they have that God has blessed them with. The grain offering is given. And it, cause it comes back to the heart. So all people, whether rich or poor, can please God through giving their best. So this is... The poor man's, as someone said, this is the poor man's burnt offering. And, and it satisfies, as, as the burnt offering does, it satisfies the anger of God against sin. And it brings atonement for those who have sinned. And, and, and it brings the same thing that the same weight that the burnt offering has, it brings as well. When you read chapter 2, then, the grain comes in several different ways. And really, there's five. You can bring just flour uncooked. You can bake the flour in an oven into loaves. You can prepare them on a griddle in small cakes if you would like. You can cook the flour in a pan as you read it, or you can roast it. Whatever pleasure you may have on how you want to take your flour and your grain, you can prepare it how you want to prepare it and bring it to the Lord as he lays us out. Now, when you read chapter 2, again, putting ourselves in that time, some have suggested here that it's not just the poor man's offering and takes that place, which God's being merciful to, to recognize that. Each one of these steps, someone says, maybe speaks to a socioeconomic class. I'm not sure if that's right, but when it speaks to the oven, that would be saying you may have more than others, all the way down to just putting it over the fire. What the Lord is saying, how you prepare it, any one of these ways, we will accept it when it comes in from a pure heart. We will accept that when it comes in from a pure heart. So when you see this, he's, he's making provision. This shows the grace and mercy of God through worship, reflecting whatever status you are in, you bring your best before the Lord. You bring your best before the Lord. I want to note just a couple things about this one on this uh, idea of worship in chapter 2 with the grain offerings. One, the grain offerings must begin at home. I don't think we miss this piece. But what it says is that 
You prepare those and then you bring them into worship. Does everybody get what I'm saying here? I don't think we overlooked that. The idea of worship begins not when you enter into the temple or the tabernacle, but even before that. You're preparing yourself to come into worship even in your home. Even in your home, when we read the scriptures, we got to recognize that our whole life must be an act of worship. And I will tell you, I don't care what age you are, where you're at stage in life, today is maybe the day that you begin to understand the role and the blessing of worshiping at your home together with your wife, your friend, your family, worshiping together and preparing your heart to come. As my granddad used to say, and I've heard it a million times, Sunday morning church is a what? Saturday night decision. Y'all ever heard that? You got to lay out your clothes. My, I've heard that a million times in my life. And so you, 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 hey, if you go in, you got to get ready tonight. You got to lay them out. And that's a true story. That's a true story. In fact, the other week I came to church and I had no idea if I matched until I got outside in the sunlight. Y'all know what I'm saying? Because if you don't, you got to do the light. You can't cut them on because I get up real early on Sundays. You got, it's a lot better and easier if you go ahead and prepare your heart and prepare yourself to come in. It's a lot better. But the Lord's saying the home is where worship begins. Worship doesn't just start at 8.30 or 9.40 or 11 o'clock at Taylor. Worship begins even in our homes. And so before you even come in with this grain sacrifice, you got to prepare yourself to be ready to present it and come in and be ready. There's many ways that we can prepare ourselves. Reading the scriptures, reading through what our, our lesson is in life group, reading through what the pastor may be preaching from or going from, praying that the Lord would prepare your heart, even singing. And I know some of y'all are terrible singers. But the Lord don't, he knows that too. And if anybody can smile through it, God can. Y'all know what I'm saying? That's, I, he's up there just saying, yeah, I didn't give him that gift. I can promise. Okay. But even singing, prepare your heart for worship at home. And I'm asking you this as, as, as a pastor here. I, I tell uh, uh, Kevin, we talk about it all the time, you know, the, the, the worship leader of Taylor's First Baptist is really the pastor, right? Setting the tone for how worship should be, how it should come in. And because and, and, and worship isn't just the singing part. We worship through the giving of the word and we worship through the singing and we worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We worship in all of those ways and we worship as we listen to these things. And so that happens. But if you're putting it all on me or all on our staff to build your worship experience here, then you're putting a weight on us that we can't carry. We can't, pull, we can't pull that off. If you're coming in for some experience that we offer, that's not what we're trying to give you. What we're trying to do is here, gather together as believers who have recognized all throughout this past week, it may have been tough, it may have been busy, but God has been faithful. And what we do on the first day of the week is we remember that this is the day our Savior rose again. And no matter what may happen in life, we celebrate every single Sunday morning that Jesus is alive and he's good and he's faithful. 
And if you think you can come here and just conjure that up in a moment without living with that understanding throughout the week, you're misunderstanding what worship is. Worship is a lifestyle that we live. And here even, the Lord's saying, if you're going to bring your grain offering, you got to prepare that at the home and bring it into worship. And that's what I'd ask you as well. Prepare your heart. Be ready. Pray that God would speak to you. Ask the Lord who it is that he wants you to bring this Sunday morning and say, let's come with me to worship and be about it. Ask the Lord what it is that he wants you to learn and grow. Prepare your hearts as just as he says here. We learned this in this grain offering, but not only that. What you see with this grain offering is, is something that's said over and over again in this passage. When you cook it, you season it with salt. Frankincense, oil, and salt. You put those things together. This salt is an interesting verse because you look at verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now, we see frankincense up here and, and we see some oil, but he makes a point here to say all of your offerings, when you bake your cakes here, whether it's on in the oven all the way down to the fire, when you bake your cakes, you season all of them with salt. But he says something else about salt, doesn't he? He says it's the salt of the covenant, the salt of the promise. Now that's interesting. What does he mean here by salt of the covenant or salt of the promise? Flip over with me, I think, to the passage I want to go to, Numbers chapter 18. They're, they're, they're on their way here, wandering in the wilderness in Numbers 18. I think that's the right one. We'll just go ahead and assume it is. So he's talking here about the duties of the priests and the Levites in Numbers 18. And he says, all the whole, verse 19, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual, perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. I think salt here becomes a picture of something for them. It's a testimony. It's in the same way that the Lord Jesus tells us that, that we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? So it's not just a sense of, of, of what salt is as NaCl, you know, sodium chloride. It's not just that. It's giving us some picture of what's meant here. And when he says salt of the covenant, we recognize the preservative nature of salt, right? We recognize how salt preserves. I mean, it's the way meat was kept for many, for many, many years until we had the old icebox was invented. It's the way it was kept. So salt is preservative. And so when you do that, the salt of the covenant is a testimony that we still believe the promises. That what we are doing is keeping, preserving the promises of God and they're continuing in my generation and the next all the way down through this offering. It's a statement of what we believe here ultimately about the offering, a preservative. But not only that, I think it goes the other way. Not only is it a preservative, look with me to Deuteronomy 29, 23. Just looking here in the Pentateuch, there's other places we can turn but Deuteronomy 29, man, I hope this one's right too. 
This is talking about the Lord coming in judgment with Moab. And he says, uh, verse 22, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, When they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and what? Salt. Nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebuim. So salt also represents what? The judgment of God. Too much salt kills everything. Y'all know that? Too much salt will kill it. Like the Dead Sea, nothing lives in that. It's too salty and it kills it. Or, or thinking, as he says, about Sodom and Gomorrah or, or thinking about you know um, Lot and his wife who turned into a pillar of salt. This land, nothing even grows in it because God's judgment came upon it. It's a land that recognized of salt. What this salt comes to then, I believe, is that when we offer worship from the Lord, we recognize that we are holding fast to the promises of God. When we come in and worship, it's because we believe the promises, right? We believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that he sent his son to die in our place. We believe that we have life in him, and we believe that he's coming back, and one day he'll bring us to himself. And whatever sorrow and whatever pain has gone on this week, we believe that is slight and momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. So when you come in and offer it up, you offer it up with some salt, recognizing that God's promises are preserved this week in my life and what I offer and what I give. And I'm passing those preserved promises down to my children, to my family, on down from me. I'm keeping those. But there's also this sense here, this sense here that if you don't know or keep the promises, the judgment comes as well. If you don't know or keep them, then the judgment of God is there. The salt represents the faithful continuing, preserving of the promises of God. And it represents the judgment of those who do not keep it. At the same time, here he's saying, you bring this offering with a sense of knowing that God's promises are faithful and true. And the alternative to worship and keeping the promises of God is his judgment. It's his judgment. Not only that, we know big picture, stepping back, just as we've said before, just as Jesus taught us, that these Old Testament passages are pointing us to him. This bread that brought in through the sacrifice that was cooked in the oven all the way down to the fire represents ultimately the bread that we will feast upon that's been offered on our behalf. Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We, we know what we teach about the Burnt offerings, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We, we understand that. But you also know that Jesus teaches the same lesson from the grain, right? In, in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, somewhere in there. That wheat of ground of, of seed will, will fall to the earth and die. And when it falls to the earth and dies, what happens? It brings back life. And so ultimately here, this wheat that we see as Jesus is talking about is representative of an offering that when it dies, it brings life. When it's offered up, it brings life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm offering myself 
Myself, down in verse 23, Jesus answered him, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The very grain by which you bring as an offering is a testimony to how you will find salvation itself. This grain that fell to the ground and died and then came back is now, in essence, life to you because it's how you worship God and bring honor to his name. This even points to this grain that Christ says that he is, where he will fall to the ground, die, and come back and bring life. So ultimately, this offering is not just teaching them that anyone can come to worship the Lord. No matter who you are, you have something to bring. That you bring that, you prepare that in your heart and in your home and you bring it out of testimony knowing that this, these promises of God are true so we worship the one God who is true and who is faithful and the only alternative is his judgment. I'm going to worship him and worship him forever. Look into the one who was the ultimate grain offering on our behalf who went to the cross and died, rose again to bring life, offering of himself so that we can have, we can have the promises of God true. We see that here in this chapter two, but let's keep going. Let's go to chapter three. Chapter three is the peace offering. Uh, many of your texts may have the fellowship offering as well. The word there, uh, Ziba Shalomim, means sacrifice, and then the next word is related there to shalom, which means peace, but it has a range of meanings, and I think that fellowship is helpful here because that meaning fellowship is kind of teaching what this offering is doing. This is a different type of offering that is coming, a fellowship offering. What's happening here through this fellowship that's happening, that's coming, is that there is a shared table together. This is the offering that you bring. You bring it in and you eat it and you eat it with the priest, if you will. The purpose here is not to atone for sin, not to atone for your sins. The purpose here is to deepen your relationship with God. This sacrifice is a personal gratitude statement, a thanksgiving sacrifice to God. Thanksgiving. The reason why peace works is because you're offering up peace. If you sit at the table with the Lord, the idea of eating at the table with someone means that that person is not your enemy. That person is your friend. You are eating together. You're partaking together. You're communing together. So as your friend here, you're now in peace with this one or fellowship with them. And so this offering is an offering of gratitude, of thanksgiving, an offering of peace, a symbol of fellowship. It's to take joy in who God is. If you look over to chapter 7, when it talks about what's coming there in this offering with the, the priests, verse 11, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, that one may offer to the Lord, if he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened. It goes down. It says thanksgiving over and over again. Or a vow offering here. Ultimately, it's giving us this free will offering to demonstrate fellowship with God. So you're bringing this 
peace offering or fellowship offering out of thanksgiving in your heart because of the joy of who God is, you're coming in to eat with him. It's symbolic that you're communing with him or eating with him. That's what this offering is for. The purpose is to show our gratitude to God, our thanksgiving, our joy in allowing and in, in his faithfulness to save us and allowing us to come into his presence with this offering. This offering, this offering uh, takes into fact the blessing. In other words, I think in many ways this offering becomes for us the precursor to the blessing, right? Uh, Y'all know what the blessing is, right? That's when you get together and say grace. Every time you say grace, you know, I think of that movie, Grace Died 30 Years Ago. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I shouldn't have said that. You get together and you say the blessing. You say grace before you eat. Why? Because what what you're admitting is that the very food before us is a gift of God. And you're thankful. You're thankful. That's why I still think it's good for us to say it. You know what I'm saying? And in the midst of thankfulness, stopping to say, God, thank you for what you're doing. It's some joy to understand that what I have in front of me has been provided for me by God and I'm thankful for it. What we can never, ever lose as God's people is a thankful heart. You know what happens when you stop being thankful? You become bitter. The moment you stop being thankful is the moment you become bitter. When you stop recognizing that that it's God who's provided everything, you start thinking you deserve more than you got, right? You start thinking this isn't enough and I I need more. You start thinking that that I, I should have something else on my table before this. And when you start thinking that, you become bitter at those who you think should have helped you provide this. And ultimately that bitterness will turn into God and bitterness grows up in your heart like a root and it comes up bigger than an oak tree. And before long, all you are is a bitter old soul that nobody wants to talk to. Y'all know them. Don't look around. The moment you stop being thankful is the moment you start being bitter. This offering was one to come to the Lord and say, thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. You bring the food in and you eat together. The meat in here and you eat together in chapter 3. That's what this offering is. You bring, it's, it's not like the burnt offering where you have a male without blemish. This one can be any. This is male or female without blemish, but lamb, cow, whatever you want to bring, you bring it in, you lay hands on it, the head of the offering, you kill it in front of the tent of meeting, Aaron's sons throw its blood against the sides of the altar, then from the sacrifice of peace offering he shall offer food offering to the Lord, its fat, he shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrance, y'all get what I'm saying right here? This is where the trees come in. The fat that covers the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver, he shall remove with the kidneys and the priest shall burn it on the altar as food offering to the Lord. I remember uh, I was doing a mission trip in, in Guatemala and we were helping to build something and I'm a master builder. I don't know about y'all. And they put me in charge of making the concrete. I had to do the mixer, put the seven shovels in, add water to mix, all that stuff. I hadn't been back, so I don't know if it's still standing or not. (laughs) But I remember doing that all day. I mean, it was all day. We're trying to get this building, block building built. 
And man, you would be, at the end of the day, we'd be so hungry. And there where we were was on this big lake and they caught fish. And so every day we ate fish. And the lady that was cooking for us, sweet lady, but man, when, when we fry fish in Red Bank, South Carolina, I don't know if it's going to be the best fish in the world. I don't know. I don't know. But there is pretty much order to it. You know what I'm saying? You pick up the fish. You know how to pull the fins out the top. You know what I'm saying? You know how to pull the back. The spine's going to be down the middle. There's some order to it so as you won't die by eating the bone. There was no order to this fish. It just looked like whole fish and all with the with the cleaver, just bam, 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 put a little flour on it, throw it in there, you got everything, just eat it. It was a lot of work to eat. And I remember the first night she put that thing in front of me, I could, I mean, like I'm getting 10 to 15 pieces, a plate piled high of heads and bone, and I'm just starving for a piece of meat off of that. And you know what she said after 45 minutes of that? She said, yeah, I gave y'all the backbone and the heads first. The good stuff's in the back. I wanted y'all to get through with that first. I said, well, doggone. Y'all already went through two bottles of ketchup. And it didn't make sense to me. We laughed about that. It didn't make sense. The reason I'm telling you that is it seems to me here, even in the offering, what's God doing? He's taking the worst part. He's taking the fat and the others, and he's, you're offering that up to him, and he's giving you the best. He gives you the meat. He says, give me the kidneys. I ain't eating kidneys. You can maybe, with a lot of ketchup, convince me to eat some liver and onions every once in a while. My mom makes liver nips, and I turn around and walk out because it stinks too bad. <laughs> the Lord takes all that. And we sit down in this offering and eat with him. And he takes that for us, right? And he says, here's the meat for you. Let's eat together. That's what the fellowship offering is. It's a way to take joy that God has provided and to fellowship with him through the eating of this. We thank God. It's the offering of thanksgiving from our hearts. You know, nowadays, we don't have an offering of thanksgiving like this. Now, we have something. I'll talk about that in a second. But, Christian, just let me tell you what can change the world. Let me tell you what can change the world. Be thankful. In a world that goes out there and they're after every single thing they can get, and never slows down to be thankful for what they have. Man, it is radical to live thankfully, graciously in this world, right? It's radical. I told the girl in the Chick-fil-A, which Chick-fil-A never gets anything wrong. And I told her the other day, thank you. And it shocked her. And I said, well, my goodness. Nobody ever tells you thank you? She said, less than you ever think. Just be thankful and express it. And not only that, express it back to God. Every day, everywhere we go, thank you, Lord, should be a part of our regular conversation with him. 
for his blessing and his kindness. That's an offering in of itself. Just thank you, Lord. And then, not only that, what do we thank him for? Of course, this offering, I think, points us directly, directly to who Jesus is. You know, Leviticus 17, it tells us here, drain the blood, don't eat that. What's, what's that about? Leviticus 17 tells us that in the blood is life, right? That's where it is. I think ultimately, and I want to, because I don't have much time, flip with me to John chapter 6. In some ways, I, I don't know. I, I do know I do know that Jesus said when Moses wrote this, he's writing about me, right? So Jesus, not about Josh, about Jesus. Jesus said, Moses writes about me. And so I believe every story, as I've told y'all, is, is pointing us to Christ. And so I think this offering is doing the exact same thing. And I, I think even here, you have this passage because, because in the... In the uh, the offering, the fellowship or peace offering, it tells us drain the blood, don't eat that. Eat the meat, drain the blood. It tells us in Leviticus, don't drink that blood because in that is, is the life of that animal. Don't do that. It tells us not to do it. So you're wondering why in the world do we do that? And then in John chapter six, notice what Jesus says. He flips it. And this, this may be interesting to you. It's interesting to me. John six in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, I truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So Jesus, by the way, this verse has caused all kind of consternation throughout life. The early Romans believed that the Christians were cannibal because they talked about cannibals, because they talked about eating the, the body and the blood of Christ, right? Through the Lord's Supper. There was these kind of things that, that, that be, but what Jesus is doing here makes sense when we point back to things like the fellowship offering. He says, remember that unless you eat the flesh of Christ and drink the blood of Christ. You don't drink the blood of those animals. You drink the blood of Christ. Why? Because the blood has the life in it. And know what he says. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. It makes more sense when we put that in context with things like the fellowship or peace offering that God's saying. Because we recognize that all of those sacrifices there that are in Leviticus are pointing us finally to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Christ. And it teaches us something. Every single one of those sacrifices teaches us about what Christ has done for us. And if we're going to have life, we got to come to the table. If we're going to have fellowship with God, we come to the table with thanksgiving in our heart and we feast upon Jesus. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can't save us or give us life. And the meat of that animal cannot ultimately sustain us. No matter how much we love steak, it's, we're still hungry four to five hours later. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But when we feast on Christ, we're eternally satisfied. He fulfills it all. And so this sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 3 is pointing us to the thanksgiving by which we come to the table and take that bread and eat it with thanksgiving in our heart for Jesus has died for us. It represents his body. And we take that 
juice, God bless us. And we drink it because Jesus shed his blood for us and in that is life. Not in the juice, but what that represents for us. And if we want to have fellowship with God, it will only be by coming to the table and feasting upon Christ. We want to have peace with God, it's only through the sacrifice that was offered on our behalf through Jesus. These sacrifices in Leviticus teach us what Jesus has done for us on the cross, what his sacrifice means for us. Each one of them has its way of intimately opening up another beautiful image that Jesus came for us. And we come to worship him with joy. Now, I don't have to prepare my cakes at home before I come to Sunday morning. I mean, unless you want to bring donuts or something like that. But contrary to popular opinion, donuts are not going to get you into heaven. We don't have to prepare that. For the sacrifice has already been made. What we do is we prepare our hearts with thanksgiving that Jesus has paid it all. He's done everything for us. We prepare our hearts with thanksgiving that we, because of what he has done, get to worship the one true and living God for all eternity. And I'm going to begin today and start here. And what you find us doing together in worship is what we'll be doing forever. And I've said it before. Others have said it, not new with me. I want to be doing the stuff that's going to matter 10,000 years from now. Not the stuff that's fleeting and doesn't really ultimately matter. Stephen, Pastor Stephen told us that story of that girl who heard the gospel. God used. You know, he did it and he'd tell us that story in, in, in our staff time together. And he said, how many people would y'all think would be cool if, if from her believed? And I think somebody said 20. So Stephen set us up. Ah, 20, that'd be cool. How about 100? How much was it? How about, I was about to say 140, so I was on short changer. How about 160? And so ultimately for us, that's what matters. That's what matters. That's why we come to worship, for what Christ has done, for this is our employment forever. And we come with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts because we have fellowship with him through the sacrifice he offered on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ. May you be glorified in our life in every way. For you created us to bring you glory. And there in bringing you glory is our satisfaction. And we know that only comes through Christ.